As we continue in our sermon series, Unbroken, last week we talked about creation and God's plan of why he created. This week we're going to talk about sin. Uh, What happens when we sin? Does this mess up God's plan? Does it kind of hijack it? Um, We're going to talk today about three uh, places in the Bible uh, that shows man's sin what has happened by that, the brokenness that's caused by that. We're going to look at God's grace in the midst of that sin. Uh, We're going to uh, talk about as we go on, um, don't you hate it when you lose your mind completely of what your points are? Isn't that fun right there? It happens to all of us. I know the last thing we're going to talk about is what do we do with this grace? Ah, the one that hit me. And of course, the cross and the resurrection of what God does. How does the plan, what happens in the moment of all this? We're going to discuss that today. And again, we end up on the application. What do we do with this grace? If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn uh, to Genesis chapter 3. And here we see, again, last week we talked about creation. Everything is good. He's made everything. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And here we talk about how Satan comes in in this moment. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die." Now, here we're told that God says you can eat whatever you want, but there's one tree that you're not going to eat of the fruit, and that is the tree and the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Every other tree you can eat of. When the enemy comes in, he begins to say, did God really say that? Now, here's the thing. Church, as soon as that question, how, how good of a communicator is God? God is the perfect communicator. If God says it, it absolutely is true. We may have to get context to understand it, but God doesn't say, well, you know what? I said this, but I really meant that. Have you ever had those words where you said something? Think about this. Married or friends or something else or coworkers, and you say something, and as it's coming out of your mouth, you go, no, no. Because how it's come out, it's in your mind, this is what you're saying, but how it comes out is you're a jerk, right? That's how it comes out. Now, God, when he says it, he's the perfect communicator. He means it, he's right, he's correct. The enemy, though, asked him, did God really say that? Do you know what the scary thing is for us is that as we look at this Bible The scary thing is all of a sudden, when we look at it, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, what? You're going to be tempted. Surely it can't mean that. Surely it can't mean that. Let me share with you. Is God the perfect communicator? He says it. He means it. Again, we may need context. We may need to understand, but I'm going to share with you right now. God, when he says it, he is right. He is correct. He goes after Eve to say this, and Eve, she quotes back, but then she does something that she shouldn't have done. What is that? Anyone want to say? She said, we may not eat nor 
touch. Now, church, as important as it is, we cannot take away from God's word. I will tell you, early as a, as a Christian, I would run across things in here and I would just skip over them. And I would read other things because there were passages in here that just, I didn't like certain words, I didn't like certain passages, and I would skip over them. In fact, in the early part of my pastorate, there were certain passages that I didn't want to preach because I was like going, oh, then I've come to this point. It's not about me, it's about him. Every part of this is good. Don't skip over it. Wrestle with it. Allow God to show you the truth because it sets us free, deeper in relationship, deeper knowing God's heart. He is a good God. As much as he calls us to not take out or skip over, we're also not called to add to. We have this problem that we think that, well, I need to add to God's word because it will help God. And it will help other people if I add to God's word to help them. Let me share with you. It does not help. You are not helping to add to God's word. God does not need your help. God does not need my help, right? All sufficient, all powerful, all loving. Doesn't need you. Doesn't need me, but he invites us in to follow him. Eve decided to add by saying, well, it will be helpful to say not only eat, but not touch. That'll be really helpful. It wasn't helpful. She sinned. It caused a problem. In the midst of all this, Adam is standing there going, okay, doesn't say a word, Eve adds to it, and then all of a sudden they're tempted, and when they take the apple and they both eat of it, all of a sudden they have chosen to do what they think is best, and when they bite of it and they eat of it, they recognize their nakedness. They recognize in this moment it all becomes about them. In the perfect world, it would all be focused on God, his glory, his amazing worth, to worship him, to listen to him. In, a, in the perfect, unfallen world, it would all be focused on him. We would have no notice of ourselves or even care. But yet, in the midst of sin, it becomes all about us. All about us. See, when we look at sin, there are many things that sin does, but we're going to look at three on top of this today what it does. One, sin twists the word of God. Sin twists the word of God. The enemy comes in and says, did God really say it? Eve becomes tempted and then she falls into it to add to God's word. Sin twists the word of God. It makes it to where we don't even fully comprehend or understand. We make it about us. Sin distorts the image of God. Adam and Eve were made in God's image to reflect who God was. And yet by their sin, they distort God's image. It's no longer about how great he is. It's no longer about that he's perfect. It, I'll give you the perfect example of this. We are called to reflect God's image. We're made in his image. But if you see somebody that says that they're a follower of Christ and they go to church and they're living like a hellion, what does a lost person think of that person who says they're saved and going to church? Bunch of hypocrites. You know what? God's a hypocrite too. We take away from God's glory by while we live for us and not for him. 
And then sin breaks our fellowship with God and with others. Notice in the garden, when sin comes in, Adam's like going, it's her fault. Eve's like, Satan's fault. Everybody's blaming everybody. Nobody's taking responsibility. That's what sin does to us. Sin ends up going, their fault, their fault, their fault, their fault, their fault, their fault. It doesn't take any ownership of God, I sinned against you. Adam and Eve were at each other. And then they decided that they would do these ways of, of, of making things right. And so they made these clothes for themselves and covered themselves up. But it didn't solve anything because then they hid. They, they made clothes of bushes and then they hid in them. Doesn't really work, does it? But as we think about what has happened, there's another consequence. And this now that we are pitted against Satan on this earth, whereas if they would have resisted, Satan would have been done. Adam and Eve could have stood and it had been done. But now there's this constant warfare that takes place. Listen in verse 15, chapter 3 of Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Constantly, this is what seems to take place. Now, God in this moment, because of sin, He has the right to look at them and pass judgment because only God knows the value of sin. You and I, when we look at the value of sin, many times um, we like to place our own value on it. We'll look at what God's Word says, and then all of a sudden we'll make a conscious choice. Well, I know that God doesn't want me to do it, but it's not that big of a deal. True? Are there sins in your life right now that you have given permission for that they're not that big of a deal? And you even use the fact that you're saved and covered and forgiven that somehow you've been given permission to do such a thing. Am I tracking or not? I know that's a hard thing to ask right now because everybody goes, if I admit it, that means I'm doing it. Uh Uh-huh. That's the problem we all face. Only God has the right to judge the true value of sin. You and I, we will, we will either give ourselves, it's not that big of a deal, but we'll look at somebody else and say, Sinner! Oh, you're horrible. You're the worst person ever. Ah! Oh, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not, I didn't do it. It's not that bad. But God, when he gives the value of sin, God says this, sin causes death, and thus it's called to be judged, and God's judgment on sin is a punishment And it's eternal damnation away from him. That's what God thinks of sin. That's what God thinks of sin. And he could have looked at Adam and Eve in that moment and looked at them and said, what's Adam and Eve's excuse? They don't have a fallen nature. They don't have, what's their excuse? And God could have looked at them in that moment and he could have said, you wicked Servants, I gave you everything, laid it out for you. You had nothing to do but to walk with me. You could have called out to me and I'd been right there. And you wicked servants. And thus, not only will I strike you from the face of this earth, but you will face eternity of torment for standing against me. And God would have been just in doing so. 
Why? Because he has the proper evaluation of sin. But let me tell you something beautiful about God. Even in the beginning of Genesis, God looked at Adam and Eve, and he looked at the work they had done to try to cover themselves, and he says, I know you're naked. You're aware of it. He takes an animal. This animal, innocent, kills the animal. He takes the skins and he covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. He covers them. God shows Adam and Eve grace in that moment. Instead of striking them and being done with them, he shows them grace in that moment and covering over their nakedness. This first point, point one, sin leads to brokenness, but God gives grace for restoration. Sin leads to brokenness, but, God's, but God gives grace for restoration. As we go on into the Bible of Genesis, we go into chapter 6. And so as Adam and Eve, God says, uh, be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth. That's what they're called to do. And so then we get to the time of Noah and mankind has started to cover the earth. But as they have done this, they have turned all to themselves. Everything about, has been about every individual and every person. Verse 6 says this, or verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right now, we think we're in a pretty messed up world with people. Sometimes we're like going, well, well, you can't, you, you can't trust anybody. But, but technically, that's not true. Because we know that there are times that somebody will be stranded on the road. And there's always the, the fear of, well, what if somebody does something? And that, and, but there are people that stop on the side of the road and help people. There are people that all of a sudden uh, still look at somebody in the midst of need and they give to that person's need. Watch this, whether that be Christian or even non-believer. There are people that still choose to do good acts in this world. But here at this time, the Bible is telling us the world has become so corrupted, so corrupted, that every thought and every intention that they do in the world is to do evil. It is all about them. They don't do a kind act in order to help somebody. They do a kind act in order to get something from somebody. Of course, we're not tempted to do that, right? A little sarcasm there. Do you love people for their good or for your good? Do you build relationships and network with people in order to benefit them, or is it all about what I get from them? See, we have to ask the question again of what sin does. Here in Genesis, everything that it says at this time of Noah, everybody did everything only for themselves. Every intention was evil. And it says that God saw the earth in verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
God weighs sin. He looks at what people are doing. And God's grace, as we see in the beginning of this, is always about trying to reach people, but people get to make choices. And no matter what the people had seen around them and what they had done, they had chosen to go a path to reject God and to go their way. And time after time after time after time, they had rejected until finally there was no hope for this part of mankind. They continually had sought evil. But Noah, it says that Noah here in verse 8, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless. Now Noah is righteous and blameless, but he ain't sinless. There's no one that's sinless other than the been born of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in flesh that was born. He knew no sin, but everybody else born in the flesh is a sinner. Noah was a sinner. But we get an idea of what this means of blameless and righteous. Hebrews tells us Noah trusted. He believed God, and it was credited to him this way, the same way it talks about Abraham. He believed God. He trusted God. Noah was not sinless, but he trusted God. How do we know this? It even tells us here. He tells us, uh, the Bible tells us in 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And then it goes on to give these dimensions of this massive thing that's supposed to be built. And the question is, how long did it take Noah? Sometimes the biblical answer is 120 years. Sometimes we look at it. Of, there, the Bible does not tell us exactly. It does tell us this, of when God tells him and the time his child is born to where it's going to flood, we know we have a century or so there. How long did it take him to build it? Maybe he was done in three years. Maybe he was done in seven. But we know this. All three of his children had to be grown married because God extends a covenant promise to them. But here's the amazing thing. It doesn't matter how long it took him. Because over this time, here's the crazy thing. God says build it, and he's building it, and what's a flood? What's this deluge of water? You can imagine right now all the people around him going, what is that? Noah, you're nuts. You're crazy. This monument to God, stands for a century trying to point people to what's going on, and yet none of them will ever do it. They point to, Noah, you're crazy. Who's this God who would tell you to do something like that? He's powerless. What's wasted? What are you doing? See, church, we have to remember, you and I have this problem that we want to see the world to see what's going on through either our sight or through our feelings. Sometimes that's we believe God is at work through our sight and through our feelings. We look at the world around us and we go, it's horrible, this is bad, God can't be at work. Our feelings, there's no hope. There's no way we're ever getting out of this darkness. Everything, it's, it's just, oh. Could you imagine Noah who lives in a time when everybody has an evil intent, and he goes, what's the point in doing this, God? I probably, how, what's an ark? How am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to build it? What's going on here? It doesn't matter. It's, 
But Noah doesn't go on what it looks like or how he feels. He goes by faith. God said, build it, and thus I will trust him that it can be done. The church would do a whole lot better if we would quit being guided by how it looks and how it feels and go back to what God says. We would go back better to be able to say, I don't care the consequences of what's going to happen, how it feels, as long as it brings glory to God and I'm obedient unto him. That's what Noah did. Now, it says something amazing here because after Noah builds this ark, and the time is set there as a testament unto God, and then all of a sudden, the waters break, and the floodwaters are coming. We have to remember, though, this thing is massive. All the animals that come on, the eight families that come on, and there's a massive door. How do you shut it? Noah doesn't shut the door. Listen to what it says here. It says in 7.16, Genesis 7.16, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. See, Noah, what he did was he did a work of trusting God, but he didn't have the power to save himself or all the flesh that entered the ark. It was going to flood unless God sealed the door. And that's exactly what God did. Noah's work, if it was left up to the power of Noah, they would have drowned inside the ark. And what would have been the point? But the reason it was so powerful is because Noah heard God, was obedient to what he said, and then it was God's power that saved them. Church, your obedience doesn't have any power in itself. But the God you follow, when you follow him in obedience, there's power in that. Because it's God who's the one that's doing the work. If you want to wonder, why is there no power in my life? I'll ask the question, are you obeying God out of your strength or out of his strength? Are you being obedient to God because the Bible says so and I'm going to be a good person? Or are you saying, God, I am a wicked sinner, but you have called me to be a child of God and it is through you that I will be different. God's power sealed them in and thus they were saved by the power of God. Point two, God gives saving grace to those who trust him. God gives saving grace to those who trust him. We go to Genesis 11. Here we have the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's go back again. What's the sin here? What's the sin the beginning of Genesis, God's plan, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and cover the face of the earth. Man, all of a sudden, they have a different plan. Instead of being obedient to God and glorifying him, let's build a city to ourselves. Can you think of it? If we, can you think of the excuses? If we build it and we all come together, we'll be safe out there. We will make it. 
Let's build it. We can, we can make a name for ourselves. We can draw people in. Look how magnificent we can become. All that sounds good except for this. It's not what God commanded. It's not what God commanded. Be fruitful, multiply, go out. And here's what we know. The concern is, is that we've already seen the flood. We saw what happens when mankind comes together and they're not obedient to God, how that goes over centuries. And then all of a sudden, the whole group is corrupted. God's promised never to flood it again, right? So what do you do? We also know after the flood and we get into the time of Israel, when they walk into, uh, when they walk into the promised land, that you have the Canaanites that are there. The Canaanites are an evil group. Every intention about them is evil. God's given them 400 years in order to repent. And yet there's still wickedness. Church, in this moment, God looks at what they say. They, we have a better plan. Guys, let me just encourage us, me, you, us. You don't have a better plan than God. Let me say it again. You I, we do not have a better plan than God. When you open up his word and it calls you how to reconcile with people, well, I just don't want to do it because I'm probably going to get hurt again and they're never going to change and so I'm just going to, mm, no, mm -mm, no, I have a better plan, protect myself and I'll just be a godly person. You are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite. When you don't do what God calls you to do, he's not asking what they're going to do. He's asking what you're going to do. And when you follow God and you're obedient, it doesn't matter what they do. It matters what God's doing in your life. But I will tell you this, and here's the crazy thing. Have you ever thought that the way that God transforms is by me taking the step of obedience and then watching what God does in people's lives? How many people in here saved yourself? Huh. So if you're in Jesus Christ, he saved you by his power, right? Do you think that God has the ability to transform hearts that are hardened? Do you think that God has the ability to take people that are sinning and to take and transform them? Do you believe that? Then my question is this. Then what are you doing to be obedient to God and quit looking at somebody else of what they are doing? When do you start in the moment to say this, God, I don't care what they do. Do a work within me. And Lord, they're in your hands. You transform them. You change them. And God, at the same point in time, as you're changing them, change this heart. Change me. Change me. The problem with the Tower of Babel, is they all come together. They've got a plan better than God's, better than God's. And God all of a sudden looks and sees what they're doing. Verse six, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God confuses their language. Why? Because he's already seen what pre-flood people are like. We already are going to see what happens with the Canaanites all throughout this. But God has a grace for these people, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it doesn't seem like it. God goes down and confuses their language. Why? So that there would be hope that these people who are planning a horrible plan, God has intervened to give them hope. 
even when they don't realize it. Sometimes the next time that we complain about, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, have you asked God instead of why what he's up to? You might be surprised. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe part of the reason why we're dealing with some of the COVID, maybe God by his grace is shaking the church out to figure out those who really want to be in and those who are not. Maybe even to wake some people up. You thought that you knew me, but you don't know me. You are lukewarm. I am spitting you out. Only with the proper grace to say this, come to me based on me, Jesus Christ, and not on you. Have you ever thought that God is still, God's plan has not been stopped by anything that this world has ever thrown at it? God's grace is still at work. Are you asking God what instead of why? Here we have this, that God gives grace to all people. God gives grace to all people. There's a common grace that goes throughout this world that points people back that God still is out there. For every person that does not know Him, that God is still doing everything He can to draw people to Him, that even if they don't want to follow, they cannot deny the grace that God has given. You know, sometimes God provides jobs for people that don't follow Him. God provides food at times for people that don't follow Him. God provides things for people because God is a loving God. Mankind messes things up. Sometimes we have shortages of food. We have shortages of supply because other people are selfish and they take things. We look at famines that happen in other places of the world that could be easily solved. But mankind is more worried about other things other than sometimes of God's heart of people. But God gives grace to all people that they would come to him. Now out of this, there are two things we think about. One, what does this mean in dealing with Satan? How do we deal with Satan? And two, how, would he, how do we deal with our sinfulness? Let's start with the first one. This point four, we experience the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We experience the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope is not found in anything else other than Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Here in Romans 5, Paul's talking to them and he's, he's going to bring in the law, which in our Unbroken series, that will come to covering. We haven't covered that yet. But you and I know a better part of the story right now, so we understand the law. We understand what was given to the Israelites. Listen to what it says here. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. For by the one man's disobedience, Adam and Eve's disobedience caused a curse for all of mankind that we are under. But what, by one man's obedience, that of the Christ God, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Why was the law given? Why was the law given? 
Church, the law was not given so that we would live out the law. What's your purpose? If you put the Ten Commandments out, what's your purpose of putting the Ten Commandments out? I ask this question. A little controversial. I understand. You don't have to agree with me. But if you put the Ten Commandments, are you trying to help people realize that there's a rule of law that they're not living under and that they need help for a Savior? Or are you putting that in yours and saying, we need to live by the Ten Commandments? You don't live by the Ten Commandments. How many of y'all mowed on Saturday? You broke the Sabbath. The Sunday is not Sabbath. Under the law, Saturday is the Sabbath. Have no other gods before me. Do we even want to get into this? Do you see a world in the midst of a pandemic trying to figure things out? And we're trying to figure out college football. And do you know the reason why we're trying to figure out college football? Well, I watch this. The reason why is because part of that economy, it's gonna, there's, there, are, there are millions of dollars that they're trying to figure out there right now. But the other side is this. What am I going to do on Saturdays? How am I going to make it? I don't know. Maybe spend time with the kids. Maybe go out and do something with your family. Maybe go out and it's going to be okay. But see, the crazy thing is this. We don't realize how much we break them. If the purpose is to put the Ten Commandments out in order to say everybody to follow them, that is not the purpose of the law. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to show us not only do you sin, you sin in worse ways than you even were aware of. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I have the law, I see it, I fail, I fail, I fail, I fail. My sin is heavy, but God's grace is greater. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law is given to me, it shows me my wickedness, but God's grace comes to me. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve for God to give me one extra thought. And yet his grace comes and through Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. For those that put faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, I'm washed as white as snow. Why? Not because I deserve it and not because I did works. It's because I trusted what God said and I aligned my life. God, everything, it's about you. And so thus, I'll follow you. I'll trust you. I'll follow you. We experience the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And think about how beautiful this is. As Christ died and rose from the dead, just as Adam and Eve sinned and tried to cover their nakedness, their sinfulness, God took an animal, killed the animal, took its life from it, but took the covering and put it over Adam and Eve so that they would not be naked. But we see God's grace even greater in that Christ came and died for sinners, enemies of his. That's us. And he died upon the cross was beaten, bruised, mocked, went through everything, shed his blood and died, was buried. Three days later, rose from the grave that everyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ, we're not covered, we're cleansed. We're washed as white as snow. 
We're washed as white as snow. We're not covered, we're cleansed. Just as God closed the ark and sealed Noah and his family inside, so God seals us into the day of salvation. Listen to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, meaning Jesus Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In the same way that God sealed them into the ark, a different type of seal, but God stamps us in saying this, that one is mine until the day of my coming back and reigning. We are sealed, sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And just as God, when we think about this, by his grace, he scatters all uh, of the Tower of Babel into different languages and he scatters them so that they don't become another pre-flood organ- uh, group or they don't become another Can- only Canaanite type people. As he spread them out throughout the whole thing to do what he said, which was to multiply the earth. We then get into Acts chapter 2. And we see God's heart from the beginning of Genesis and his unbroken plans. That even though man has sinned, you can't stop what God's trying to accomplish. Not God's trying to accomplish. God is accomplishing and will accomplish. He begins to take people. And we have the, uh, that of Pentecost And if you have all the Jews that have gathered in, they all have different languages. All these different languages. You would think they're, well, they all speak Hebrew, but they don't because they have been scattered. And as they come in for this time at the Pentecost, all of a sudden, these apostles, these disciples, all of a sudden, they begin to speak. And as they are speaking, all these different Jews are walking in and they're like going, he's, he's speaking in my language. He's, he's speaking in my language. He's speaking in my language. He's speaking in my language. How is this possible? Because God took this all the way through. And he's saying, I am drawing people back unto me. Church, God's plan has not been stopped. And thus he is still drawing people unto one God. And that's what he's doing. Now the last part of this, dealing with Satan... And then also, what do we do with this grace? Remember, with Adam and Eve, God tells them, I will put, meaning God, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This constant conflict that's taking place, this constant conflict that's going about. And yet we get to Romans 16.20. And this is what God says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, under your feet, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We're not going to put an end to the conflict of Satan. God is. Satan is striking our heel. We're stepping down. Both are going through things. But God's coming in and saying, Satan, you're done. It's over. It's done. So what do we do now? What's an application for the grace that's been given to us as we wrap this up? Church, think about this for a moment. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, what's your purpose? See, you and I, I think at times, we we take away from God's Word. 
Because we think that what God only wants from us is that he wants us to place faith in him so we can be saved. And at some point, we kind of stop it there sometimes. We just say what God wants us to do is to be saved. And thus, I've given my life to Christ and I'm saved. But that's not where it ends. And that's not the purpose, just to be saved. God has come into our lives, not just to save us, but to transform us. To take us to make us look more and more like Him. Listen to Romans 6, 1-4. through What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Remember how it told us that the law was sent to increase sin, but grace increased all the more? There were some people in the early church that said this, well, if we want to see God's grace really increase, we should sin more. So more sin to increase God's grace. Listen to what Paul says. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, did you die to sin when you came to Christ? Or did you just say, I just want to be forgiven? The Bible here is telling us, when you come to Christ, you, who you used to be, and we see this in water baptism, who you used to be goes under that in a grave. What happens if you stay in that water? Not that, not that the Pastor Scott or any of the other pastors are going to do this, but if you stayed under that water for 10 minutes, what's going to happen? You're going to be dead, right? You're going to be dead. That water is supposed to represent, this is who I used to be. This is who I used to be. And when I went into that, I died. I died to who I used to be. And as I come out, I am raised as a new creation in Christ. I am a new creation. Not the old, I'm not just a wet mangy dog, Sean, that's come up and I'm just wet and oh, I'm saved. I am a new creation. It represents what Christ has done and is doing in my life. And so now, do I... Continue on in sin? By no means. How, who we, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, did you catch that? We too might walk in the newness of life. God is life. He walks in life. And if I am in Christ, I am called to walk in the newness of life. That means this. I'm not the same old person. I am a new creation. Not by my works, but by His. And the power that causes me to look like Christ is not me going, I've got to try harder, got to try harder, got to try harder. It's just like the ark. I put faith in God to follow him, but it is God's power that does the transformation. It is God's power that gives me the ability to do it. But I have to come to the point and recognize this. God, forgive me that I have made it about me instead of the fullness of your story about you. Is there sin in your life right now that you are making excuses of as a Christian and you are saying this, well, I'm forgiven and I'm saved. God's not asking you to become sinless. First John tells us you can't become sinless. It's not going to happen. 
If you, were, if you were reading that out of Scripture, I'm going to tell you right now, that is an out-of-context Scripture that somehow now you become saved and now you don't ever sin again. That's taken out of context. That is not true. But here's what is true. As a follower of Christ, as I follow Him, I should be coming and looking more like Him every single moment, every single day, and I do not compromise what God has told me to do. I submit to God. I repent. I confess of my sins. And I begin to say, God, your way, not my way. Your way, not my way. Is there grace with people that you need to give right now? Maybe somebody has said this. Maybe this is what somebody said. They can't take it back. Do you give grace to people or do you sit there and go, What about you? Have you said things? We give grace because God gave grace to us. What about things and areas in your life that are stuck with sin? And you're like going, God, thank you for saving me and I'm just going to continue on living the way I want. God didn't die for you to stay the same. He died so that he would transform you and rose again so that you would have new life. What is it that God's calling you to do in your life Not by your strength, but by His power in your life. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, let me just share with you. At the very end of time, the Bible tells us that we're going to have to face God with what we have done. We're going to have to give an account, every single one of us, of what we've said, what we've done, our intentions towards others. Everything is going to be laid bare before God. Everything. Things that you thought were hidden in the dark will be proclaimed in the light. You will have to give an answer unto God. And if you come to God with just you and you state, you know what, though? I became a better person. I tried to go back and and make things up for what people did, and I just, I try to become a better person. God will look at what you have said and say this. You have tried to come to me on your own power when I have given you the plan that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Because you have come on your own and you've been given every opportunity to come to Jesus to clean you, make you clean, forgive you and everything, I leave you unto yourself. You stand condemned by your own words. And thus, you, have faced, you will face punishment and you will be cast into the lake of fire. And there is no way around that. But this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God came so that no one should perish. And He came giving it laid out that whoever puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever comes to Him of His death and resurrection and claims, I have broken your law, I have messed up, but I am coming unto you, and the only thing I can do is trust that if you say it's in Jesus, in Jesus I come to you. And it's going to have to be by your power that I'm changed, not by what I'm going to try to do. It is by you and you alone. Then God will look at us. Jesus Christ will look at us and say, Welcome, my child. Enter into the gates. Enter into my presence for all of eternity. You are welcome. Where do you stand with God's grace? Where do you stand with your sin? Where do you stand with applying God's grace? Those are things God's calling us to go to Him and be obedient. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, you already know what you have spoken to in people's lives.
Lord, may we be obedient. Not only in a time of this altar, but even more importantly, in our very lives as we follow you this moment and going forward. Lord, do what you need to do and let us have hearts that are receptive to be obedient. It's in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.